0: Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Big thanks to Haya for stepping in last week. I'm excited to be back on the TechCrunch podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, Matthew Panzerino comes on to tell us about his week with the new iPhone 14 and 14 Plus, and Becca Skutak and I talk about the unpredictable state of VC as we enter the fall. But before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Adobe announced this week that it intends to acquire Figma for $20 billion. Figma has built a great reputation in the design community for being a modern, collaboration-friendly alternative to Adobe's more traditional design tools. Figma CEO and co-founder Dylan Field tweeted in January of last year that the company's goal was, quote, to be Figma, not Adobe. $20 billion is a lot of reason to change your tune, however. Be sure to go check out our interview with Dylan on Found, which we republished this week to the podcast feed. And find out more about the deal from Ingrid London on TC. The merge has taken place. Cryptocurrency blockchain Ethereum has switched to proof-of-stake from proof-of-work. The transition should reduce Ethereum's overall energy consumption. The Ethereum Foundation says the cryptocurrency will be 99.95% more efficient going forward. Otherwise, the change shouldn't really mean much in terms of day-to-day Ethereum usage, which was the goal. There's more about this from Roman Diet on TechCrunch. And also be sure to check out the Equity Chain Reaction crossover episode this week, where they get way more into detail about all the the behind-the-scenes action on this merge. Google is scaling back its Area 120 R&D division. Area 120 focuses on experimental products, which often stand apart from the company's core businesses. Area 120 will continue to operate, but half of the 14 projects the R&D group was working on have been cut, and the employees working on those have been told to find new jobs within Google by January or face termination. You can check out more on TC from Sarah Perez. Uber is facing a massive cybersecurity incident that came to light on Thursday. A single teen hacker has claimed responsibility for the breach, which he says occurred because Uber has poor security measures. The hacker used social engineering to gain access to an employee's Slack account, and from there was able to access a range of Uber systems, including its AWS and Google Cloud accounts. More on this developing story from Carly Page on TechCrunch. First up, Matthew Panzerino is going to walk us through a few favorite features of the iPhone 14 and 14 Pro, and why it's important that Apple made relatively few changes on the iPhone 14 and some big changes on the 14 Pro. Hey, Matthew, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you doing? Great. Okay. I'm excited to get my phone tomorrow, but you already have one or two or a few, maybe actually, I think the total numbers, perhaps three, three, uh, I think. Yeah.
1: Three this time. Yeah. The iPhone, there were several, obviously all at once, except the iPhone uh, 14 plus. Right. That's delayed a bit to October. So they didn't send us one of those to test yet. So I don't have one of those.
0: Yeah. But you have had some time with the iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Pro. So what do you think about these phones in general? I mean, they're iPhones. We know that much. They are iPhones. I mean, (laughs) you know, (laughs) since since the iPhone,
1: uh, the switch to this kind of new design language, there hasn't really been a lot to talk about from the design front. Mm -hmm. You know, small tweaks, obviously, here and there, new colors, some updates to finishes and things like that, but at a glance, these are going to look very similar to any other iPhones from the past several years. So mostly internal stuff this time around. And I think the, like the one big impression that you come away with is that Apple really does know what they're doing here. They feel really comfortable with this design and the way that it supports the features that they want. Mm-hmm. You know, the external band gives them a lot of freedom to put antennas and ports and things where they want them and not have to make too many compromises. The rounded edge design, I think, limited them. To some degree, and so once they switch to this new flat-edged thing that we've got now, this little slab-type design, I think they've been pretty pleased with that. We've seen that kind of bleed across their whole lineup. So initial impressions are: hey, this feels like you know the iPhone 13, the iPhone 12 in the hand, and feels pretty good. Uh, the ID is still feels interesting enough. But, you know, I think most people are going to slam a case right on it and that's the way they express themselves and all of that stuff. So as far as the design of the iPhone, it's both important and not that important these days. It's kind of a weird, weird space.
0: Right. Now, the 14 Pro does look different, but mostly that's to do with a relatively small. It's not actually like what you would call. A body change. Like the industrial design is still essentially the iPhone 10. but they moved something and they changed it a little bit and it's gonna, you can show it off. People will know you have the new one, right? Uh, you're talking about the dynamic island? I'm talking about the dynamic island, that dynamic island. amazing yes. exercise and branding that everybody loves. <laughs> yeah, I call
1: it the pill. I think <laughs> a lot of people might. Yeah, I mean, the two big changes that you're going to see right away in the iPhone 14 Pro is the larger camera array. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks very similar, but it's bigger, you know, chunkier. They've got some bigger cameras and bigger sensors to fit in there, so that increased. But then on the front, yeah, right away, I think people are going to gravitate towards the change in the notch, the infamous notch. Yeah. Which is where Apple hides their front-facing camera and sensors to do Face ID and stuff like that. They've moved that out and away from the edge, and it now is like this little pill-shaped lozenge that holds the same sensors, the camera proximity sensors sort of tucked away under the screen, but then the uh, face ID, the LIDAR and all that junk has to be exposed, right? So you have to put it somewhere on the face. And they've chosen to, instead of putting the notch back into some sort of margin area, They've the way I refer to it in my reviews that they leaned into the notch mm-hmm. and, and made it a part of the of the display. So now it's got this separate little unit that sits there on the screen. It's very prominent. Very uh, what's the word? The tech companies love? you. Oh, unapologetic. Ah, uh, it's, yes. It's it's unapologetically present. Yeah, the, I think it's it's interesting for sure. The
0: existing notch looks like a concession. Like oh, it's just and then it just right. kind of like. Bloop, bubbles out like oh we're sorry about this but it's just bubbling out
1: <laughs> yeah just elbowing our way into the your screen here oh par- pardon me excuse yeah. me uh, make way uh yeah i do i think that's the vibe right the notches oh, oh i'm so sorry i just i come sorry i sorry i have to be here right <laughs> and then the dynamic island the pill is very much like hey i'm here and i, I have some things to talk about, it, right? <laughs> like I have some things to say, you know, from a design language perspective. So the way I understand it from my conversations is that this team that worked on this, some of the members of this team helped design the interactions for the home screen mm. when they switched away from the home button. And I think there's an allegory there, right? Or, or, or similarity in the way that those two scenarios played out, you know, home button was a omnipresent, right? iPhone feature characteristic and getting rid of that and moving to a pure software solution was absolutely you a know, volatile <laughs> scenario. Mm-hmm. They could have torpedoed the entire iPhone lineup by not getting that right because the simplicity of that home button interaction was sort of at the core of this iPhone just works and the iPhone is the easy one to use narrative that Apple traded on so heavily in the early days of iPhone. Like, hey, we know there are other smartphones, but if you want one that just works and it's going to be easy to use, get the iPhone. They really traded heavily on that moving away from that to the software swipe was a big risk and they did pull it off pretty well. And now it feels incredibly natural. You know, if you ever use a phone with a home button now, I know there's still some people that like it, which that's great. Mm-hmm. But if you use one now, it definitely feels a little awkward, right? If you've been away from it. Yeah. That's a big success there. And I think that the pill is trading on some of the similar theories there. This idea that they can take a software interaction and make it sort of integral to the way that you use the phone by, being designed forward about it by trading on gestures um mm-hmm. you know it reacts to both long presses and taps it is a reactive area you know it's interactive with the user it's not just some sort of passive notification area and then it transforms right just like kind of the home screen. Scenario transform like, hey, your lock screen transitions smoothly into your home screen by like moving this pane over that pane. I'm not going to stretch it, the analogy too far, but I I do think there are some similarities there in the design language. And I know that some team members worked on both projects inside Apple. And, you know, the consensus around it has been mildly polarizing, but I think most of the reviewers that I've seen out there felt very similar about it in the way that I do, which is that it has proven itself to be useful in the time I've had with it. Yeah. I do like the fact that it houses. Activities, you know, ongoing activities, as well as just brief notifications that tell you things like, hey, your AirPods are attached mm-hmm. or you've got a, a face ID that comes through like a face ID notification instead of appearing weirdly in the center of the screen. Now, you know, now that seems odd. Yeah, um, it grows out of the face ID camera itself huh. know, it kind of goes bloop and says, hey, you know, you got a face ID interaction and confirmed it's you. And um, all of that stuff, I think, makes a lot of sense. So, so far, I have a couple of relatively positive impressions about how they pulled this off.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I've seen I've been looking around for a reaction to that specifically. And what's interesting is even leading into it, I think based just on the presentation, a lot of people were surprisingly excited by this idea. Like there was a lot of positive reaction even just to the presentation of it, right? Like they got a lot of plaudits for just taking the swing, I guess. And then it seems like they have pulled it off. Although I think you mentioned in your review, you know, there are some things where it feels a little bit like, okay, well, great. It's great that you guys tried and now you got to refine this a little bit, right? But overall, I think your impression is this is a good thing and a good direction They're moving.
1: Yeah, you know, when you publish a review about these things and, you know, you have some time, you have a week or in this case, six days or a little less than six days to actually do as much as you can with it, right? And the dynamic island, I tried to like use (laughs) aggressively, Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe in a way that most people won't use it because that's the job, right? You want to assess like, does this thing work really? You know? In all of that, you start to notice some rough edges for sure. There are some scenarios where like, you know, the timer is four digits, maybe the last digits a little bit truncated, you Mm. know, (laughs) off the edge of the the display area, you know, just little things and and some alignment issues between icons and things like that. But these are, you know, they should be better because you want to expect that out of a team like Apple that has a lot of engineers, very high profile. And not only that, but there's this old adage, you know, that how much time, Whatever feature takes up on the the Apple keynotes is sort of how important it is. Right. Right. To the, to Apple internally. And this took up a big chunk of it. Right. Yeah. So if you're going to lean into this, it should be really, really polished. Now I have to say, functionally, very few issues so far. Like it works. I'm talking mostly polished stuff from a design perspective. So you can tell that this is something that they were working on till the last minute, basically. Yeah. You know, right up until the last minute, trying to make it work as best as it could. Now there's certainly, some elements of this that you use in isolation for those six days and then you wonder how are the other reviewers thinking about this right. like it and I, as you mentioned the consensus in the room seemed to be that's cool right and the public perception of it was oh neat and certainly when people have understood that i had the phone or was testing it or whatever or had seen it in the hands-on they were like oh what'd you think of that you know that thing right and i'm talking for lack of a better term, normies—just right. people who are going to buy the iPhone, not not tech people, you know, not tech world people, just uh, casual acquaintances and they're or friends, and they're like, "Oh yeah, what's that dynamic island thing? That looks cool," and I think that the the perception has mostly lived up in. You know, the handling and the use of it so far. And then if you look at the other reviews, I think overall, most people were relatively pleased with the way they implemented it and the way that it, it's functioning as it stands. Yeah. But certainly a big effort. I mean, there's hardware behind this. Right. You know, it's not just software. They had to obviously adjust placement of sensors, but then they also are doing some hardware anti-aliasing using the GPU mm-hmm. to sort of match up the edges of this thing because it grows and shrinks. Yeah. It's got a, it's a little amorphous blob that can take on whatever shape it needs to at the moment. And it's got some nice, fun little animations, little breathing and and splitting animations that I think people expect out of Apple and want out of Apple. But they had to support that using hardware to make it match up with the physical edges of the camera array. And so this was one of those things where it's not like, hey, maybe we could do this fun thing in software. This was planned yeah. way back.
0: Yeah, right. It seems extremely intentional. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that was my other question that I would have loved to have asked them. I don't know if you did, but, you know, it's the what came first, the pill or the dynamic island, for lack of a better set of terms, right? Like, was it they wanted to do a cutout and then they somebody was like, well, let's build a user interface around it. Or was it they wanted to build a unique user interface and said, let's move the thing down here to accommodate that, right?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I did not ask my question. And I kind of want to talk to that team. And maybe I'll I'll pitch them on this, so to speak. I'll just be like, hey, uh, you know, can I talk to the team? Mm-hmm. Um, because I do want to, they're trotting out people more and more. Right? It used yeah. to be oh, yeah. very much behind the curtain. Don't ask who built this. So-and-so, John Smith, right, <laughs> right. Jane Doe, because uh, they don't want, they, they used to be hoard their <laughs> design talent and engineering. To, but as we've seen during the keynotes, they've been Putting more and more people that actually build these things at Apple out into the public eye. And so sometimes they're willing to let those teams talk about the impetus, the thesis behind these things, where they began, the kernel of that started it all. Obviously it's at the end of the day, it's kind of marketing for them, right? Yeah. Like they get to talk about why their thing is, you know, so cool and all of this stuff. But it's just fascinating to me. I just like having those conversations about the how and why design choices at Especially hardware and software, you know, integrated choices get made and how right. they get made. So, it, you know, it's a kind of <laughs> services my curiosity, but also <laughs> probably services their needs. Um, so sometimes they're willing. Well, at least mine. And so that's like an N of two yeah. or whatever, right? But yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody's always going to, you know, both people got to win. There's going to be some unhappiness unha- and happiness on both sides for this thing to, to actually be real. But, you know, I, I do think that the concept of it had to have been decided fairly early, given the hardware changes. I mean, I think that moving the proximity sensor under the screen and positioning this thing much lower in the chassis than it was before, those are decisions that you don't make unless you kind of know how you're going to handle the software aspects of it. So whatever decisions they made, I don't think there was a big lag between them. And the chicken or egg question is definitely open for debate, 100%. I have no idea. Which concept came first, like, hey, we want to build a notification and reactive area into the top of the phone. Hey, guess what? We've got these cameras. Let's move them into that space. Right. I don't know which order that happened in, but whatever order it happened in, I would imagine that the delta between those two decisions being made was relatively small because they had to make them almost in lockstep in order to get the hardware locked which normally happens eighteen months plus out yeah. in time to support the software features and to
0: polish it to this degree, because as you said, right. it's like it's quite an involved thing. Like it's not as simple as it appears. It's one of those things where it's like the skill is really apparent in the fact that it does seem so simple and so natural, right? But that means. A lot of work behind the scenes went on on that design team and that software team right, and the hardware team. right. So a lot about the Dynamic Island, but I do think it's a big talking point for people looking to buy the phone. The other one is probably the camera because they spent quite a bit of time on that, as they usually do. It seemed like there were a lot of big upgrades there, including the first major megapixel jump. Although there's a lot of caveats around that. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with the camera there?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, all of the cameras <laughs> have new hardware. In the iPhone 14 Pro. So they upgraded them all at once. Most of them show distinct image improvements. I think the telephoto is sort of good enough, which is good because the last telephoto was barely good enough, yes. right? Like, so, so yeah. the, <laughs> Moving from the 2X in the iPhone 12 to the 3X in the iPhone 13 Pro was kind of rough from an image quality perspective. Mm-hmm. Like it was nice to have like, hey, look, I'm going to zoom out and click. But you almost were just as well off digital zooming from one of the yeah. other lenses you know so it's certainly nice to have that be a viable option in your arsenal so that's my assessment of the telephoto look it's actually viable you can take a picture with it and not be totally you know meh about it right the ultra wide has 100 percent focus pixels now is actually same focal length mm. the the wide is slightly wider but the ultra wide is good it's a little bit improved i would say it's not like Night and day, but you do get extra light gathering mid to low light situations. The color rendition's a bit better, the edges are a bit sharper overall. All of that stuff,
0: yeah. I like how you put it in the review that it's like it's no longer the I just want to squeeze somebody extra in lens, right? It's like you can actually do some interesting stuff with this and have fun with it,
1: yeah, exactly. You could put that image in your portfolio in your carousel and print it out, maybe whatever you want to do with it, and not feel like wow. I guess we use this lens. Right. I got some really fun stuff with the 13s ultra wide and the 12s ultra wide in really bright light. Like if it was really bright light and the subjects were the right distance away, because remember the 12 was fixed focus. Yeah. And then the 13 Pro added some autofocus to it. But now having full autofocus pixels means that it focuses faster. A little bit more viable and iffy light, you can actually get those nice scenic shots in relatively low light and feel a little bit more pleased with them, I think. Mm -hmm. But the big upgrade was the jump from 12 megapixels to theoretically 48 megapixels in the sensor for the wide camera. Obviously, this is a quad bear array that is binned, which means they use four pixels to make one pixel worth Mm -hmm. of information for photo sites. And they do that to reduce noise and improve color rendition, right? It's pretty simple. It's like, hey, combine these four into one, take the best bits from each one of them, combine that into a single pixel so that turns 48 into 12. So the the pictures that you take are still Mm -hmm. 12 megapixel, but they have 48 megapixels worth of information going into them. That results in better low light, better fine detail. I was very impressed with like the, you know, kind of striations on a flower's petal were just crisper um, a little bit. I know that there's some complaints. People, it is mostly a personal tasting. Mm-hmm. Some people don't like the sharpness that Apple is applying in post. And some
0: people do, right? Yeah, It can be a challenge. It's a a challenge with big cameras too, right? Like whenever you have a large megapixel camera, you know, Sony has like their a7r series and that's a large megapixel. But a lot of people are like, I don't want that. I want the a9 series, which is a little megapixel, a little bit more forgiving for portraits or studio work or something like that. Right. So definitely a taste and situation.
1: Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, fortunately for the people that are super picky about it, it does shoot raw, right? obviously, and Apple started that a few years ago. And with this one, it's interesting because this 48 megapixel sensor will turn out 12 megapixel shots, gets you great JPEGs processed through Apple's ISP and their photographic pipeline. However, if you are a photographer that wants to shoot raw, you can shoot raw a couple of ways. You can shoot 12 megapixel raws, Mm -hmm. which are binned at the hardware level. So it integrates these various frames. I think it's like four primary frames, three to four secondary frames in every time you shoot a picture. Right. And this is normal for the JPEGs that everybody shoots. And um, this started a few years ago and most people never even know what happens, which is ideal. Right. You click the button and you're like, cool, I took a picture. Well, no, you took like eight pictures, 12 pictures. And then the image processing algorithms and hardware interleaved them together to get you a great image, especially in the low light situations, because they'll take a bunch of exposures, combine them, you know, sort of in the old HDR ish kind of way, you know, that used to happen manually in Photoshop or or uh, whatever. But I do feel that this hardware interleaving of images is probably the biggest jump forward for the the photo processing engine and certainly Apple talked about it they call it the photonic engine mm-hmm. but it basically means that they are using hardware to combine those images before any of the image processing goes into them yeah. so things like demosaicing where they just they strip out the patterning that comes naturally from a sensor you know anti noise methodologies um, color corrections sharpening all of that stuff right so they combine the frames in hardware at the raw level first, which I was managed to test it out because some of the camera hardware in the iPhone 14 is the same as the iPhone 13 Pro. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to kind of do a compare and contrast between those two. And you can see there's a little slight advantage to doing that. But I think the advantage is massive when you're shooting raw. So as a photographer, you can choose to dump the full 48 megapixels into a raw. It's a 75 to 100 megabyte raw image. That dumps right onto the disc and it takes about three seconds per shot mm. you cannot just rapid fire those 48 megabytes yeah, of walls yeah. it's a lot of info because remember it's interleaving those frames still yeah. it's still combining them but it's doing them in hardware and so that's not just like you're like oh cool 75 megabytes they should be able to rapid fire those puppies right but it's not it's like seven or eight of those mm-hmm. <laughs> or ten of them sometimes and um that fills up the pipeline they, they even with the faster memory this time around it really slams into the pipe pretty hard And so you're only able to take about one every three seconds or so Mm. those 48 megapixel raws, but you can choose to shoot 12 megapixel raw as well. And that bins them, which means it uses the four pixels, combines them into one, interleaves them, and then leaves you with a 12 megapixel raw image that you can then adjust. I think this is going to be like the prime option for most photographers. And, you know, people that want to use the iPhone for photography, not the casual shooter or most people, to be honest, right. which are going to get a great JPEG, just shooting JPEG. But if you want to shoot raw, I think the 12 megapixel raw is going to be very popular because it utilizes the binning, it utilizes the photonic engine to give them a better raw start mm-hmm. to work from. And it's reasonable. You can rapid fire those things, they're reasonable size, they don't fill up your storage so rapidly, you know, all of that stuff. So I think that that's kind of like the sweet spot. I'm interested to see as more photographers can handle on it. Some folks have their initial impressions yeah. out there so far and I think that's aligning with the way that I was thinking about
0: it. So Yeah, it looks very cool. I think Austin, oh, they always- Austin Mann. Austin Mann, yeah. So he had his yeah. initial impression. And I think like I was reading that and it lines up with what you're talking about. But yeah, I think that's very exciting. I think those are the kind of the big areas. The one final thing I wanted to ask if you got a chance to check out was, did you get anywhere where you had to point the thing at the satellite and then try to see if it would connect? Is that even testable? No, it's not out yet. Unfortunately, that doesn't come out until November. Gotcha. Right. I was able to see a
1: live demo of it at Apple's campus and. The demo was utilizing actual satellites in the air obviously we weren't sending any emergency messages, but it showed sending sample messages to the satellite mm. and all of that the process i mean at you know in demo conditions just caveat right looked pretty straightforward and pretty clever if you've ever used a sat phone, you know they can be pretty quirky right I mean they're talking to satellites and the communication protocols there are notoriously slow yep. etc I think Apple's done as good Apple a job they can at making that process feel friendly, you know, it's an emergency scenario that for the most part, it's going to be used in. And so you want it to be as clean and crisp as possible. You could be feeling all kinds of ways emotional about your current state, panicked or worried or stressed or et cetera. So they kind of wanted to make that process as sweet as possible. It's like a quick multiple choice tap that leads you into the process. Well, you just dial 911, yeah. right? Like to trigger it. And then a quick multiple choice tab of like, hey, you know, what kind of emergency is it? What's your situation? And then it uses this like highly compressed text algorithm to send the texts. But basically, you to get it started, you just sort of hold the phone up. It puts a little display on the screen that shows you, hey, move left, move right. OK, sweet spot. It'll turn green. And you're pointed at the satellite and it does it. So it's sort of, a you know, a shaped signal mm-hmm. reception, which is how they were able to do it with no external antennas and just utilizing the internal antenna with some tweaks, with some adjustments. Right because they did update it to do this. We don't know exactly what those are, but I'm sure the teardowns will start to show us pretty soon as people get them in the next couple of days. But the process looked pretty smooth. Definitely smoother than any, any satellite interface I've seen that are normally pretty clunky.
0: Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to testing that out maybe a bit more in come November, but it definitely sounds like one of those things where it's like, yeah, if Apple can do this and put this in there, why wouldn't they, right? Because it's it's going to be net right. benefit versus what you had before, which was nothing for most people, right? So Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, if you're prepared with your little Garmin and, you know, you you hike regularly, this may not be like a life-changing thing for you, but it could be, you know, hey, maybe I just... Don't subscribe unless I'm doing a through hike, right? And yeah. if I'm doing a day hike and something happens, I've got my iPhone. Maybe I, I drove there. into
0: a ditch in the area between right. cell towers, right? Like something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. And one of the cool things that I think wasn't covered that well, I, I mentioned in my review, but I, I didn't think a lot of other people did, is that when you use that feature, you can just use it to send a location to find mine. Right. So it doesn't have to be an emergency. So if you have that feature come November, if you've got a new iPhone, you can use it to just send a location to find my to update it if you're outside of cell tower. So, hey, we're going on a hike to Half Dome. There's going to be no signal up there, but we'll send an update at the top. Yeah. Just let you know we made it. And um, that's kind of cool. I think that's clever. I think it's a sign of things to come, you know, about uh, Apple's reliance on terrestrial cell towers for casual features. Uh, Maybe that's on the way out. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe the way of the future is their own geosynchronous (laughs) web of satellites. It supports. They've been
0: making some hires to that effect. So we'll see. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, thanks very much, Matthew. And yeah, thank you. you'll have more to come on TechCrunch. So everybody should stay tuned. You got additional impressions coming down the pipe, I think. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Next, Becca Skutak is back to talk about what a weird summer in VC could tell us about an even more unpredictable fall. Hey, Becca, how's it going?
2: Good, good. How are you?
0: Good, good. So we're almost at fall. I don't think we're quite there officially, but we're getting into it. And it seems like maybe it's silly season for fundraising. So can you tell us a bit about these trends you've noticed? It usually has been pretty predictable over the long arc of history. And yet maybe not so much this year.
2: Some stuff has definitely stayed the same. Summer is always traditionally a slower time for fundraising, especially between strictly Memorial Day to Labor Day. And this year has Mm. proved no different. But talking to an attorney who works with firms to help them fundraise, she said that this was the slowest summer she's seen on record just from her own Practice And then that gets interesting because she said when funding slows down is when the most disparity comes about in the market of who can and can't raise, which is definitely Mm -hmm. what's been the most interesting thing that's been happening. It seems like some funds are taking longer than usual or really struggling to get to even a first close where other funds are raising really quickly, raising in six weeks, some are raising in a month. I know of a first time fund manager that raised two funds this year, 80 million under his belt. Even though he just started fundraising for Fund One in May, so it definitely seems like these disparities grew pretty wide over the summer.
0: Wow! So, is there any like sense that there's something behind this? There's something that's in common that's responsible for all this kind of like lumpiness? Because I think the definitely COVID was weird, right? And I remember talking to a lot of VCs who were like, "Yeah, first it was nothing, and then later it was a flood, and it was crazy easy to like raise funds, and LPs were just like." we got all this money. At first they were like, we don't have any money. And then they were like, we have all this money. We mm-hmm. need to raise funds. So is this kind of like a knock-on effect stale of that? Or did, what are the kind of the reasons behind the oddities you're seeing.
2: One of the big one here was track record. So I know a couple of the funds I spoke to that were able to raise really quickly were saying they had no issues having LPs sign on even in today's funding environment because they had already seen returns or sort of already had that knowledge base that this was going to be a smart investment for them, especially because Mm. talking with a few consultants a couple of weeks ago about just LP, especially big institutional LP investing and venture in general, even in times like this, they don't ever recommend to stop allocating. They don't recommend them to sort of like take a year off or anything like that. So if LPs sort of have that knowledge, especially if they've been investing since the last financial crisis, they know that they have to put their money now somewhere. So thinking of who are you going to connect with? Who are you going to invest in? Going with someone who already has a track record, or maybe they've invested them in the past. Like those are the people who are seeing the most success right now.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Cause yeah, what we've heard over and over again, I think even going into this kind of like economic uncertainty that we're in currently, like is the money is still there. It's only the money goes anywhere. And to your point you just made, like the money's gotta go somewhere. The LPs are not being told, like, sit on this. This is your wisest thing to do is just sit on this money. It's like invest the money and they're just picking winners. So that brings up the question then I guess it might be too early to say, but I think we've seen already there's a lot of backsliding when it comes to profile of where this money goes, right? At least on the founder side, right? Like fewer women are getting invested in fewer people of color and traditionally sort of like ignored minorities are not seeing the investment that they had been the gains they had been seeing. I think that's kind of a trend overall. Are you seeing this exacerbating that kind of problem?
2: I haven't seen it specifically, but I can imagine that's what's going to happen. I know, speaking with the same attorney, she mentioned that emerging managers in particular are having a really hard time raising this capital. And we all know from sort of the flood of micro funds over the last two years, and a lot of these emerging managers come with these new or more specific theses looking to invest in, say, underrepresented founders, or they themselves are coming from those backgrounds. So I definitely think it does have that trickle-down effect. But interestingly enough, two of the funds I spoke to who have had really great fundraising success... Both are people of color, and both mm. are investing in really niche areas. So it is kind of interesting. It's like a flight to familiarity, but not always the case, I guess, this year.
0: Yeah, so that was the other thing that struck me in the article. Is like, there's a very specific... Industry focus, right? That seems to be a win for for at least one of these companies you talk to. So is that the thing to pay attention to maybe from like a startups perspective is like look at these hot areas of investment that are bucking the kind of overall trends?
2: Yeah, and I think what you can draw from that too is that even as LPs are trying to be more choosy of where they're putting their money, they definitely are still looking for differentiation and still looking for sort of like unique sources of alpha, which even if fundraising is slow for some managers who would fall into that boat right now, that is overwhelmingly a positive sign.
0: Yeah, and what was the area specifically, remind me in the article that the one company was investing in, uh, it was industrials, right?
2: Yes, at the pre-seed stage. So really, really mm-hmm. early on, he told me that when he goes into rounds, it's usually him and angel investors. He rarely ever gets to invest like alongside another VC fund because very few mm-hmm. VC funds go in that early in that space, whereas a lot do actually invest in those sectors like supply chain and manufacturing after the fact. So big support from right. like Series A, enough, but not as much at the early stages.
0: Yeah, those are tough. I mean, they're very much like they share... In common with kind of biotech and other hard science companies. Like it's massively expensive at the start to get things up and running and to get past the R and D phase probably which is something that I think a lot of VCs tend to be allergic to.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, really capital intensive businesses that are really hard to get off the ground and sort of hard to get to that first product and that first sort of like revenue stream compared to, say, a software company.
0: Right. But on the other hand, like that, it's obvious why those are of interest right now, right? Like there's nothing maybe in greater turmoil than like supply chain and what that looks like internationally, particularly when it comes to industry. And this also has like a nice dovetail with clean tech because there's a big move there for like fundamental change in the way things are made, including basic building materials like concrete and stuff, right? So you can see Once you start teasing it out, like, oh, I get why this would happen. But do you think there's danger in reading too much into the tea leaves like that? Or do you think it kind of, that's the way that people should be thinking about the market
2: right now? Yeah, it's hard to tell. Because I know you read that fundraising is going down. And then I talked to an analyst for PitchBook. And he's like, yep, the numbers show. Like, fundraising has been going down quarter over quarter this Mm. year. But then Bessemer closes a huge fund this week. XYZ closes a huge fund last week. It's just, it's hard to follow. It just makes it really... Every turn has seemed interesting. The founder from Pitchbook said, when we look back at this year, it'll make sense, but now it doesn't,
0: which I thought was funny.
2: But yeah, yeah. as that attorney said, disparities just go greater in these kind of slower funding environments, which means these little micro trends yeah. sort of appear everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the scariest. Like, retrospective is like the only way to make sense of it is like, I don't want to hear that. If I'm right, am out there trying to be an operator or an investor, right? But at the flip side, it's tantalizing because it feels like, It's like one of those, there's something about there being opportunity in a way that doesn't pattern match that is actually quite exciting, right? So I feel Mm -hmm. like for a certain class of investor, you're going to get a lot of excitement and activity and vitality in this kind of environment, right?
2: Definitely. And speaking of one of the other first time funds that I spoke to for this story His fund is focused on startups in Pakistan, which I've seen a couple funding announcements come out of that country over the last year or so, but definitely Mm -hmm. a very emerging market. And it's just interesting to see that funds backing such niche areas are still getting LP investment and still being able to sort of gain that interest and that sort of momentum. So it definitely makes it harder for us where we sit of trying to predict trends and like how's Q4 gonna be and how's the fall gonna go, but it definitely keeps things interesting.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a great quote too in your article from that investor talking about like in Pakistan, it's it's almost like a reset to a simpler version of like the the market that exists now, which makes it kind of there's a lot of clarity in it, I guess, for investors. But it seems like an exciting time for yeah, for international markets and for these like sort of niche emerging hard tech places that are difficult to to invest in but if you get the right one it's going to pay off big time so it's fun honestly i was reading i was like this sounds like a fun market to watch and i hope you're having fun back <laughs> i am
2: <laughs> yeah no my favorite thing to cover is sort of the niche The things that surprise you, the things that you weren't expecting. And this definitely falls under that. I figured, oh, fundraising is going to slow down. Fundraising is going to be really boring the rest of the year. And that's just like couldn't be further from the truth. And one of the other funds I spoke to that raised quickly is their whole spiel is they invest checks that are 90% debt and 10% equity. So it's just like really fun strategies are emerging as winners here. So it's been fun to watch.
0: Cool. All right. Well, we'll keep watching out for more notes from you on what's happening over here on the frontier. But uh, thanks for joining us, Becky.
2: No, thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Also, TechCrunch Disrupt is coming up on October 18th through the 20th, live in San Francisco, with guests including Serena Williams, Dylan Field, and more. Use code TCPOD, all one word, to get 15% off passes, excluding the online and expo versions. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.